Thank you, Matt. Thank you, worship team. And uh, I want to say thank you to all of you who, uh, who helped with the middle school serve week last week. Last week, this, uh, this building was full of middle schoolers. They did a great job serving uh, in our community and in our church. It led a few of us to stop people as we were sharing lunch one day to reflect on our middle school years for a few moments. And we were all agreed that we're thankful that we aren't in middle school anymore. Um, those can be some, some challenging years for some of us, right? You're asking some, some pretty significant questions in middle school as you're struggling to maybe discover who you really are, right? Questions like, like where do I belong? Who are my friends? Am I part of the cool crowd or not? And do I really want to be part of the cool crowd? And who defines cool anyways? You know, in, in middle school, high school, I was never really part of that cool crowd, which ended up being fine by me. I was once brave enough to cross that imaginary line into the cool crowd. Um, here, here's how it happened. Uh, my freshman year in high school, we were coming closer to the Christmas banquet, and um, of course, I didn't have anybody to take to the Christmas banquet, but but the most popular girl in the class broke up with her girlfriend a few weeks before the banquet. So before anybody else could, I swooped in and asked her to go to the Christmas banquet with me. And she said yes, which was awesome. I'm going to the banquet with the coolest girl in my class. It got a little awkward, though, when she and her boyfriend got back together before the banquet. I didn't let her out of her commitment, though. So I went to the banquet with somebody else's girlfriend that year, which I guess maybe is a lot awkward, but, but hey, I did it, right? Ho hopefully as those tough junior high and high school questions sort themselves out, hopefully we all found a place to belong, right? I ended up with a really good group of friends, and I can pull out my, year, my high school yearbook from the graduation year, look to the back, and see all the notes they wrote of how we're going to stay best friends forever, right? We're never going to lose touch with them, and I lost touch with all of them. But, um, you know, a few years ago, I don't know if it was still the case today, but, but one of the biggest tasks in junior high and maybe high school is to find out who your BFF is, right? Your best friend forever. Having a group of friends wasn't enough. You needed to be somebody's very best friend. You needed to hold that kind of position above everyone else. You need to be the favorite one, right? Well, rewind back to the first century Christian church. The ones that James wrote his letter to, and they resemble a junior high hallway. Right, because they were falling into this pattern. They were, they were trying their hardest to pick favorites, right? To identify who's the cool people in the church community. And how can I become part of that cool crowd? And, and that practice is exactly what James addresses here at the start of chapter 2. You want to take out your Bibles, turn to James 2, page 978 in the Bibles you have in front of you there. Now, as you're doing that, let me remind you, James was, was the pastor, the leader of the, of the Christian church in Jerusalem as it was just beginning and growing. He's writing this letter to Jewish Christians who are now scattered throughout the then-known world, right? So people all over will be reading this, and, and he's writing to Jewish believers, so they would have been very familiar. They would have grown up with the customs of the synagogue, right? And, 
And they're incorporating many of those same customs, some of those same patterns from the Jewish synagogue into the new Christian church. And, and the custom of the Jewish synagogue was to give the places of honor to those who had earned them in some way, right? Usually a synagogue in Jesus' day was a square room, and, and on three of the walls were benches, and they didn't have folding chairs back then. So, so the important people, the honored people, got to sit on the benches there, and everybody else sat on the floor or maybe stood up. That tradition might have started out of respect for the spiritual leaders, but it in the Jewish synagogue, at least, it had devolved into, into those who had earthly power, those who had earthly status, those who were rich. They're the ones that got to sit on the benches. Everybody else sat at their feet on the floor. And so in the religious community, it created a sense of, of elitism and classism and rank and status, and that was coming into the Christian church. It's a lot like when you fly on an airplane. You know, and, and that curtain that gets pulled between coach and first class, it creates a huge barrier, doesn't it? So those of us in coach are sitting there waiting in line for a bathroom with our legs cramping up because we can hardly straighten them out and learning to be satisfied with a small cup of pop that's mostly ice and a bag of pretzels. And you know just on the other side of that curtain, there's more legroom than they know what to do with. And they're getting the meal that they are enjoying, actually, on an airplane. And there's no line to wait for the bathroom either. And I start to get jealous. And I wish I was them. And I wish I had what they had. But I don't get those seats. They're different than me, right? They're, they're somehow better on the airplane. They're more important than me. Well, those same kind of divisions are happening in the body of Christ as the seats of honor, the first class seats in the church are, are being given to some and denied to others. You don't sit there if you're not worthy. And they're being given to those who are rich and powerful. And these young churches are pandering to, being influenced by people who held these worldly positions of prestige. And James has, James has some firm and clear direction to these churches before this divisive practice can become custom in the Christian church. Listen to what he says, verses 1 through 13 of James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring in fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, but say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? 
If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James gives these first century churches all throughout the region, and churches throughout the centuries, including us here today, a clear call to impartiality and true community. He says we must consciously Avoid the temptation to go back to that junior high attitude again and decide who ranks above and who ranks below who in the community of God. We are not to give some members greater honor than others. That kind of favoritism, James says, will quickly destroy this community of love and grace to which God calls us as church to be. James calls James' call to impartiality stands on extremely firm grounding. This isn't just a minor point in in a bigger book. It's a call that we find all throughout Scripture and one that God himself clearly gives us. We can see, first of all, impartiality, showing no favoritism, as an attribute of God himself. God refuses, when he looks at all of his people, to let worldly wealth to that worldly power bias his love towards us. Right, think, about, think about the Old Testament story. The Old Testament prophet of Samuel. Right, God sends Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, the person who's going to be king after Saul. And Samuel was certain as Jesse's oldest son Eliab walked up that this was going to be the man. He was going to anoint Eliab to be king. Why? Because he was handsome and he was tall. He was kingly looking. And God said, it's not him. Remember the moral of that story that God gives, the truth that he teaches? He says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. Do not consider his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is looking at our hearts, not our faces, not our pocketbooks, not our bank accounts, not the positions we hold. He's looking at our hearts, and God doesn't show favoritism in that way. Let me read just some more passages for you in case you think that's the only one. (laughs) Not at all. Right, Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. It says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Or Acts chapter 10, where Peter is preaching at Cornelius' home. Cornelius, who's a foreigner, he's a Roman, Roman soldier. 
He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, who always says things so bluntly, he just comes out directly in Romans 2, verse 11, and declares, God does not show favoritism. And he goes on in virtually every letter he writes to make that statement, to make sure that we hear that point, right? Galatians 2, as for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. Or Ephesians 6, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Or in Colossians 3, when he's writing to the slaves instead of the masters. And he says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, for there is no favoritism. So, if you and I are going to be people who are living out the characteristics of God, if we are being more and more godly, then we need to stop judging people by their outward appearance. We need to stop giving preferential treatment to those whose favor we somehow want to win. And we need to learn to love everyone as God does. With all of our hearts as a free gift of grace, not tied to their power, not tied to what we can get from them, not tied to their wealth or their privilege. And if you and I are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, right, we talk about that. We talk about being more and more Christ-like, right? As we learn to live as God commanded us to live, we will look more and more like Jesus, right? If we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, then we need to continue to learn this impartiality because it's an attitude and a lifestyle that Jesus himself practiced and lived out while he was here on this earth. Right, Jesus, Jesus brought God's message of salvation to the poor and the sick and the destitute while at the same time bringing it to the powerful and the rich. He didn't care. He brought it to anyone who would listen. His message of salvation by grace through faith was the same message to all of them. In fact, Jesus lived out grace for all people so powerfully, so clearly, that even his enemies recognized it in him and pointed it out in him. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who... who Jesus' truth so often offended, right? They approached Jesus to try one more time to trap him. And this time they're going to ask him whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar or not, hopefully to get him to offend the Roman authorities so they can, they can arrest him and throw him, throw him in jail. And they begin their conversation with him like this. They say, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Isn't that a great line? You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They see in Jesus someone who doesn't pay attention to status. He's not paying attention to rank. All those 
All those things that meant so much to them as religious leaders, right? Making their way up the social ladder. They're up at the top, and Jesus says, that doesn't matter to me. And they probably weren't too happy with that since they were the ones who were getting the privileges of rank and power and wealth. So if we are going to imitate Jesus and the people, the people who look at us, the people who watch us, would they be able to say about you and me, I notice in you that you're not swayed by others because you don't pay any attention to who they are. You love everyone equally. If we're going to imitate Jesus, that kind of impartiality needs to be clear in our lives. So God defined it. Right? It's an attribute of God. Jesus lived it out. And then plain and simple, the Bible commands it of us. It gives explicit warnings to us against showing favoritism to people. And the commands leave little room for debate. Let me read some of them for you. Leviticus 19, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Deuteronomy 1:17, when God is giving instructions to Moses, who had just recruited all those who were going to help him judge and lead the people. He says to them, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Or Psalm 82, one of the many places where God defends those who are defenseless where God defends those who consistently on this earth get the short end of the stick. And God says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak. Defend the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Or last one, Proverbs 18, wisdom to live by. It is good. It is not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. Right? You can find the message again and again clearly from God, his son, from his word in all of our lives, especially with this community of believers in the family of God. We are to mirror that same impartiality that God modeled for us and commands for us. Favoritism. Ranking somebody higher, caring for somebody more than others, granting privileges in the family of God due to status, power, wealth. It's a sin that needs to be avoided, that needs to be repented of. You know, I, I'm just, it's a topic we don't talk about often. It's one that, that my guess is when it comes to all the theological things we can learn about, we probably think, ah, oh, Kind of a secondary, secondary thing. But it strikes me that James really gives this topic of favoritism a lot of attention here. Takes up half of chapter 2, which is 10% of his whole book. He's dedicating 10% of his whole book, of all of his teachings, to favoritism. It's a very important thing to him. Because he knows how important it is for us. And so he gives in this section that we just read three, three practical and foundational reasons of why this pattern that we fall into, you and I fall into, is showing favoritism to the wealthy and the powerful 
of why it must be eradicated from our community. Right? Verses 5 through 7 challenge us to look, to look beyond the outward, beyond the worldly standards of judging others, and to use God's standard instead. To look at the heart, right? Because honor and respect in the family of God must arise out of godliness, not out of worldliness. We judge things differently than the world does. In fact, James points out to them the hypocrisy of the favoritism that they are beginning to live out in this first century church. These wealthy individuals, the strong and the powerful in their community, are being given the seats of honor. And he says, those are the very people who are exploiting you. They're the ones that are exploiting the poor. That's how they got rich to begin with. And we know that almost all first century Christians were poor. And so, so these poor first century Christians were honoring the few wealthy ones in their community. And they're the ones whose abusive behavior is what got them their wealth. The world applauds that. God doesn't. There's a different standard of success that God celebrates. And success by God's standards, isn't measured in power. It isn't measured in prestige. It isn't measured in the car you drive or how big your bank account is or how well your business is going. It isn't measured in the size of your house or your cottage. Instead, God celebrates, God honors humility and generosity and service, and sacrifice, and faithfulness. So James says, we as the people of God need to look beyond this world's definition of success. Ooh, they've got it together. Ooh, I like them. We need to look beyond this world's definition of success and see each other through God's eyes. Celebrating a heart that is sold out for God. Celebrating lives that are being lived for Jesus. Celebrating humility and service and faithfulness and godliness wherever we see it. And in case, in case we weren't able to make the connections ourselves as these first century Christians were failing to make the connection, in verses 8 through 11... James labels favoritism for what it is. He says, know what this is. This is sin. You know, we often go back to Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus summarizes how we should live. And he summarizes all the law and commands in two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that second part, love your neighbor as yourself. That is what James is referring to here as the royal law. Okay? And, and favoritism flies in the face of that life command of loving your neighbor as yourself. When we deny the poor the respect that they deserve, when we deny them the love that they deserve, and we give it to the rich instead, we are breaking Jesus' command and we are sinning. When we deny the powerless the respect and the love that they deserve and give it to the powerful instead, we break Jesus' command and we sin. When we 
immediately think poorly and speak badly of people. Before we get to know them, just, just by looking at them, before we understand their hearts, we break Jesus' command and, when, and we sin. When we let our prejudices and our biases shape our actions, we break Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we are sinning. Showing favoritism is a sin, James says, and we need to see that. We need to know that because God sees it that way. That's what James concludes with in verses 12 and 13. God doesn't just wink and nod at favoritism as a minor infraction that that can simply be ignored. It's something he says that will be judged. God takes this, how we treat each other, very, very seriously. Remember, it's an affront against his very character. And James makes it clear in these verses that yes, there is mercy, there's grace, and there is forgiveness. That's part of God's character too. We can never forget that. But purposeful partiality is something God cannot live with. It's something he will judge. Not a salvation judgment, right? That's finished once and for all when we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross and the empty tomb and the victory that we get there. But God cannot bless individuals in a community that practices this kind of favoritism that willingly breaks the royal law of love that is so core to his transformation purposes. Now, isn't that what really this section on favoritism is all about? It's it's all about love. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about the love that God has for us and the love that we are to have for each other that is not dependent on anything that we do. Right? That's how we love each other. We don't need to be good enough. We don't need to be rich enough or popular enough to be loved in the community of Jesus Christ. We can't go back to the junior high hallways and feel like we need to somehow earn our way into being loved and being accepted and being cared about. It's not how it works here in the family of God. God loves each one of us for who we are, period. And now we love each other simply for who we are, period. Children of God, created and loved by Him. You know, as I was working on this this week, I couldn't help but think about my grandma, my my grandma Meyer, who passed away uh, 12 years ago now. Um, and for years before she passed away, she had lived in the Holland home here in Grand Rapids. And, and so after she passed away, we decided to have the, um, the visitation and, and the funeral there at the Holland home chapel so that all of her friends could, could participate and be a part of that as well. And I can remember the day before the funeral being at visitation there at the Holland home and all of my grandma's friends were walking by. And I didn't, I didn't know them well. I knew her, one of her friends, but um, I had to chuckle after a while because as these, these ladies would come by, they would shake my hand or give me a hug and they'd tell me their name and say, I was June's best friend. And then the next person would come, shake hand, I was June's best friend. 
And there must have been six or seven ladies. I was June's best friend. She cared and loved everybody so much that they all thought they were her best friend. I'm the best. That's how it works with God, right? Each one of us is God's favorite. You're God's favorite. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how powerful. You are God's favorite. You're loved by God. Know that you are God's favorite. And then, and then we need to see each other that way too. You are sitting next to God's favorite person. God's favorite person is sitting to your right, to your left, behind you, and in front of you. How, would, how should you treat somebody who's God's favorite? Man, what an honor and a privilege to meet you, to love you, to be in this family with you. In this community, we set aside the worldly standards that divide us. Power, wealth, prestige, whatever those things are that say you're worthy or you're not worthy. And we embrace the one thing that unites us. Because at the foot of the cross, we are all sinners saved by grace. And that ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. And we stand there together. All of us together, arm in arm, as God's best friends together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that in order to be loved by you, we don't need to be good enough. We don't need to wow you and impress you. Because there's nothing we can do that would impress you. There's nothing we can do that would wow you. There's nothing we can do that would make us earn your favor. But you love us anyways. Thank you. Thank you that we are your favorite simply because we belong to you. And that you love us enough, every single one of us, that you would send your son to die and rise again for each of us. Father, may we see each other the way that you see each of us. May we set aside the divisions that this world creates. May we set aside the the ladder that we try and climb to be better than others, to be more respected, more powerful, more wealthy. May we set aside those things that impress the world and truly see and love each other the way you do. Give us hearts, Father, that love each other the way you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take our offering. Our offerings this morning are for the ministries here at Ivan Rest Church. It's our way of saying thank you to God.